All right. Well, good evening. <clears throat> good evening. Thanks, Brandon. Hey, uh, Aiden, would you grab those handouts back there, please? And let's get get those. Some everybody already got them. I'm sorry. Okay. I, who who needs one? All right. There's several that need them. All right. So let him know when you, he gets near you. I really want you to have this tonight because, again, we're talking about sin. This is our third week of hermartiology, hermartiology, the study of the doctrine of sin. And so uh, uh, PJ started two weeks ago. Last week we began to define sin. We're going to do that just a little bit more today. And then we're going to get into talking about the origin of sin. And it's important. This is very important because depending on where sin comes from, that's going to help us to understand why only Jesus can save us. How it's true that only Jesus can save us. And I know we're having some streaming trouble, so we can just record the audio if they don't get it all out there. So, um, But how many of you would say that sin is talked enough in churches or it's not talked enough about in churches? What would you say is probably more true? That sin is over-talked about or it's not really spoken of enough in our churches as a whole in America? What would you say? Not enough. Not enough. In fact, it's very, very um, seldomly spoken of in many churches across this country. Uh, sin doesn't sell. Sin doesn't fill the pews. Uh, it doesn't uh, pad the church bank account, right? It doesn't build uh, uh, summer homes or winter homes for the pastor and the other elders. Uh, when you talk about sin, those things don't happen. Now, I'm not in the mood in the market for either of those kind of homes. I'm just letting you know that, all right? Um, but um, we here at Grace Point Eagle Heights, we like to talk about everything the Bible talks about. And so it's why I, typically on Sunday mornings we'll preach through a book of the Bible. And uh, sometimes on Sunday nights or Wednesdays, we might do the same. Uh, we try to always do things in context. And, uh, and by preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, it keeps us from just talking about our favorite things and then avoiding those subjects that we don't want to talk about, right? And a lot of churches just sadly do not go verse by verse through any books of the Bible. Um, and they just speak about things that draw crowds. And that's a shame uh, to the church. It's a shame on Christ because people need to know the truth, the whole truth, right? And nothing but the truth. I mean, let's go ahead and finish that out. Uh, but that's what we all need. And so we're going to talk more about sin tonight. And it'll probably get a little painful uh, tonight. But we're going to be honest with ourselves, hopefully, and certainly with the Scripture. So let's talk about what is sin. And so let's look at a few more definitions. And these, uh, I gave you some of these in your notes uh, there. Um, I'll give you all of these in my handout that I'll attach to this message like I did Sunday mornings. I think that was Sunday mornings or Sunday nights, excuse me, Sunday nights message on Israel. The, the outline, the handout, my notes are there attached on our website. Um, but what is sin? First of all, sin is... And this is from um, Paul Enns from the Moody Handbook of Theology. If you want a good handbook that just kind of goes through different doctrines and things and you want it to be a little smaller, this is a great handbook. Um, if you had one commentary to pick from, like one single unit, I, I think I would probably choose the Believer's Bible Commentary. And then if you got two, definitely get the MacArthur All-in-One Commentary. Uh, and then maybe the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I know that's some extra stuff, but uh, some Josh spoke to some of these things. I know Sunday morning in the class. Um, but this handbook is one that we all overlook a lot. And uh, I, I reference this every week in sermon prep. So uh, it's good. It's got a lot of background stuff. Uh, again, just one volume. 
um, but it doesn't really dig into like one denominational flavor of anything. It's just, what does the word say? So I like it. But he said that sin is a transgression of the law of God. We talked about that last week. It's missing the mark of God's standard for all people. And we looked at that as well. He says, so in essence, the holiness of God is seen in Jesus Christ. We are missing that standard, which is holiness. And again, that's missing the mark. And I think we mentioned this last week, but I'll repeat it uh, just in case. Missing the mark is not even just, it's not simply us accidentally not doing what God wants us to do. Right? So you're aiming for a target. Oh, I missed. I accidentally missed. No, it's, it's as if I'm aiming for the target. Let's just say Kim's holding the target and she's not the target, but she's holding. It's as if I'm just intentionally aiming over here. That's really more to the flavor of what this word means for martiology. We, we miss the mark willfully. We choose to do so because we don't love God. We don't want the things of God ultimately. And so, so that's more of the, of the feel and the flavor of that word. It's a very strong word. Here's another definition. This is from the Westminster Catechism. Missing the mark in such a way. This is what sin is. Missing the mark in such a way that I am willfully, intentionally missing. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, that's what I just said. Sin is any want from the Westminster. Sin is any want of conformity unto our transgression of the law of God. And that's, that's true. And that's good. I just don't think that's enough. And so I think that one is narrow, which is why we use all these different definitions. Here's another one. This one was from Augustine or Augustine, uh, as he's usually called. He said, I inquired what iniquity was and found it to be no substance, but the perversion of the will turned aside from thee, O God, the supreme, toward these lower things. And that's a pretty good uh, understanding of at least several aspects of sin. But again, it doesn't capture all of what sin is. Um, here uh, is another quote, and I forgot what book this was from, so I can't even make it up here on the spot, but sin isn't only about doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us or, or rather will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. In fact, I, I just remembered where that came from. That, camp, that comes from... Um, and I forgot his name. That comes from one of the biblical counselors um, who is the leader of the master's program of biblical counseling out at Master Seminary. And he's also uh, on staff at First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida. And I cannot remember his name. Um, but that's who said that. It's good stuff. Um, anyway, here's one from MacArthur. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. And we talked about that Sunday morning, in fact, in our study of uh, Psalm 63. And then finally, let's look at one more from John Frame. And this is a good book. It's older, but it's a good book called Salvation Belongs to the Lord. He said that sin is irrational. Consider Satan himself, who knows more about God than most any of us, but nevertheless seeks to replace God on the throne, an intelligent being, yet from one perspective, uh, incredibly stupid. And that should say being. I think I, there's a typo there. Um, but, but he says Satan is an intelligent being, but he's incredibly stupid because he seeks to dethrone God. But when we sin, in essence, that's what we're doing. That's part of what it is that we do. We choose something that is less than ideal, that is less than God. And I wish I could remember his name, but I'm still coming up short trying to remember. Now, um, so again, can we have a sin of omission where we forget to do something? Sure. We fail to do something that we should do. Absolutely. I think we do that, a sin of omission. But primarily, I think where we find ourselves is that we commit sin willfully. We intentionally sin. Uh, and, and I know Brent's talked about this a lot. 
uh, something I used to say all the time uh, when we're talking about love. You know, love is not something you fall into. A hole is something you fall into. But sin also, you don't just fall into sin. Uh, you choose to sin bit by bit. And maybe in the small compromises, there's an RU principle there, I think, right? Uh, small compromises lead to big disasters. And so we, we, we give in a little bit here and a little bit there till finally we are, we are diving in headfirst to sinful practices. And I think that's more of where, sadly, where we as Christians lie. Now, obviously, there may be some things that we should be doing that we aren't conscious of in this moment. And so we would fail to do those things. That would also be sin. But primarily, we willfully sin. And so most of us sin despite what we know about sin, just like Satan did. And so I, I think that's why this is such an important topic for us to, to regularly look at. Now, now, when we think about what we learned last week about what sin is, and then what we reviewed in the new territory already when we talk about what sin is, uh, I think two verses, two, two passages in the Bible would be very helpful for us to, to understand how, how harmful sin is. And the first one is probably going to shock you. Look at Mark 12, 28 through 31. This is a very familiar passage. Once we start reading it, you're going to go, oh yeah. You may have learned it in the book of Matthew, but one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And here, the word that he uses for foremost is the word protos, and it's the word we get priority from. So he's saying, what's the priority? So this is a huge question, and it's a very weighty question. And so Jesus answered and said, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And in fact, uh, I think it's Matthew where he says, um, basically, these are the summation of all the commandments. All the commandments hang on these two. I think it's how he ends that in the book of Matthew. So what does that have to do with sin? What, 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 what do those, the first and the greatest commandment have to do with sin? If the most important thing I can do is love God with everything I am, and then the next most important thing is to love other people the way I love myself, no one has trouble loving themselves, right? So we should love other people that way. So what do those two things have to do with sin? That's it. So if these two, these two commandments summarize the, all ten commandments, then they are summarizing our relationship to God, that vertical relationship, loving the Lord with everything you are, right? But they're also summarizing the other half of the commandments because the other ones have to do with how we relate to others. Don't steal, right? Don't kill. Don't, don't lie to others, all those things. So um, don't covet your neighbor's property, whatever, his wife, um, a wife and property in the same sentence. I need to be careful how I say that. Okay, so, uh, but those are all bad things, right? And so that has to do with this horizontal relationships that we have. And so if we say then, what do, what do these two um, loving God commands and loving your neighbor commands, what do they have to do with sin? How would we say that very simply? That when I fail to do this and when I fail to do this, the way these two commandments say, am I not sinning? If I've lied to my neighbor, I've sinned. If I've stolen something from my neighbor, I've sinned, right? And I'm not just breaking that commandment uh, against that person. I'm breaking that commandment against God, first and foremost, obviously. But it's how we relate to Him. It's how we relate to others. And whether we're sinning or not. 
And then again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, we've talked about a lot, especially um, Sunday before last when we looked at the glory of God, doing all things for the glory of God. So this verse says, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So if I'm doing anything less than everything for the glory of God, am I not sinning? Right? So if I, if I, um, what, what's, I'm trying to think where, where, where we are right now. What, what's some good sins that could capture us without singling anybody else? Oh, that's dangerous. Now, anything I think of and say now, you're all going to start thinking who I'm thinking of now because of the way I worded that. But, but let's, let's say, uh, hmm. Let's say that David asked me a question. I only tell him part of the truth, part of the answer. I intentionally withhold something. Am I glorifying God in that? Yes or no? I'm really not. If there's more to the story, and he's asked me the story, I should tell him the story. So I'm failing to glorify God in that relationship. Does that make sense? So this, this overlaps everything in our life. So am I doing all things for the glory of God? Husbands, your wife comes and says, does this dress make me look fat? Uh-oh. Where do we, where, what do we do? What, what, where's the escape hatch, right? I'd like go into the neighbor's house for $500, please, Alex, right? I mean, what, what's the answer there? Huh? It makes you look beautiful. Now, see, Luke, that's good stuff. Write that down. Write that down. I'm going to write that in the advertisement I'm making for you. I'm going I'm to add that, so, so remind me of that, all right? So we're looking for the winner for Luke, right? Um, Luke has volunteered to do security for the ladies' conference in January, just letting you, letting you all know. So there's no ulterior motives there, see? There's none at all. See, separate issue altogether, looking for that special lady. Separate altogether issue. Okay, moving on, moving on. All right, digging that hole deeper. Just keeps getting worse. Um, is this thing still on? Testing, testing. Um, well, where were we? I already forgot. So, so we fail to glorify God when we fail to live up to His standard in whatever we do. Be it the relationship with Him, right? Or a relationship with others. Does that make sense? And so that, that, those verses are important for that reason. Um, we need to understand that this is not just about doing right, not doing wrong. This is a heart matter, and it affects every relationship that we have, right? Everything. And so telling the whole truth. Oh, yeah, I know where I left off. We were supposed to answer that question. Does this make me look fat? But you answered it beautifully, so I'm going to move on, just like you said. So to do less than glorify God is sin. So if, if I am not glorifying God in my marital relationship, if I am being short Fused, if I'm being uh, snappy with my answers, if I am not loving my wife the way Christ loved the church, then I'm not doing that for the glory of God. And that's sin. Amen? Amen? Amen. So, um, let's, let's move on. What, what, is, um, uh, what, what are the wages of sin? What do we deserve for sin? Death. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. So, so let's talk about the origin of sin. And this will be, this will be a little funner. Uh, it's fun to me, and if you really like this stuff, it'll be fun to you. If not, it's just more information, but this information is important. Understanding uh, the bottom line of why are we guilty? We have to understand where sin comes from and uh, what the origin is. Well, um, sin <clears throat> is not only what one does, but it's also what inherently exists within us. That's one of the doubts there. So sin is not only what one does, but it's also what inherently exists within us. The problem is that we have to answer is where does that then come from? Are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners? And I know we've talked about this in the past and there's an aspect where both of those things are true, but they're necessarily true together. Uh, but ultimately, one of them was first. And so we're going to undress that here. Romans 5.12. 
Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Meaning all sinned in that first sin. But how? How did we all sin and Adam sin? And that's the debate that people still hold to today. Uh, I think uh, that it's fairly clear, scripturally speaking. But some men are very wordy and they can argue or wordsmith themselves maybe into looking uh, right, or at least real close to right. But close to right is not what we want to believe, amen? We want to believe what's right. Does that make sense? And so which is it? Am I a sinner because I sin? Or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Well, let's look at Romans 7. Look at verses 14 through 25. Lengthy passage. I'll try not to stop and comment on here, but just note the progression that Paul makes, the argument. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And what, for what I am doing, I do not understand. And for, what, uh, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, let me just say one thing. This is a little confusing, isn't it? He's just kind of all over the place, back and forth. Is it my fault or not? Can I blame it on my flesh or is it outside of me? I mean, he's kind of, seems like he's arguing with himself. That's not a bad thing to do. Remember, in light of Sunday, we were talking about um, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, we should preach to ourselves, Right? Maybe not argue back and forth in this manner, but we should tell ourselves what we're to believe, how we're to feel, rather than letting our feelings control us, right? You remember that from Sunday? So, so Paul is basically engaged in that scenario. So he goes on to say, uh, where do I leave off? 22? For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the death, uh, from the body of this death? Excuse me. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, in my flesh or with my flesh, the law of sin. And so he acknowledges, thanks be to God for saving me, but this battle wages on, is the thing. And I'm glad that's in there because it makes me, uh, it takes a little bit of the pressure off of my sinfulness because I sin as well. Are you all sin free yet? Who, who? Anybody? Okay, good. Thanks. There's at least no liars here with us today, right? So we all acknowledge that we're not perfect and thank God for grace and His salvation and His mercy. Amen? Amen. So, the question of original sin. Here's a definition. What is original sin? Well, Original sin, then, is the sinful state and condition in which men are born. Mankind is born. That's what's called original sin. And it's called that because, and here's, a, here's kind of a, a little three-point argument to, to consider. It's called original because it is derived from the original root of our race. And that is Adam, the first man. Remember, he was created from the dirt of the ground, right? God breathed into him the breath of life, and then the woman was made from him. From his side, from his rib. Okay? So all humanity now has come from Adam. And therefore, since 
He is the root of humanity. Original sin must come from the root member. And that is through Adam. All right, point two. It is present in the life of every individual from the time of his birth. Every individual from the time of our birth. So we're born sinful. Psalm 139, David mentions that. In sin was I conceived. It's not just that both of his parents were sinful. The ideal is that his beginning is sin. Does that make sense? In sin was he conceived. So from the very beginning, which brings us to this third point, third observation. Original sin is the inward root of all actual sins that defile the life of humanity. And this is a good, this is Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology. I would give it an A plus except for his eschatology. It's not good. Um, but everything else is dynamite, especially the soteriology section, the study about salvation, and then hermartiology, about sin. It's really good. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not one to read right before bed. Again, this one makes you think. You need to read it with a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, probably. Um, but original sin refers then to the first sin of Adam and the original, or rather the condition of all subsequent people that have come from him because we're sinners. We're born in sin. So am I a sinner because I sin? Or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Which one's first? I sin because I'm a sinner. That comes first. But the other is still true. They're both true. Just if you had to put them in a, in a, in a necessary order, we're born into sin. Only Adam was born, was created in perfection. No sin. Sin came into Adam. We're born in sin. Now, what, we'll, what we will seek to answer a little next week um, is... Uh, what about babies then when they, when they go to heaven? When, when they die, do they go to heaven? And so if we're all born with original sin, how does that work out? And so we're going we're gonna to answer that next week. It's a very good question, very important question. Um, but just note that if what we're saying is true, that is a problem with babies going to heaven. Not an insurmountable problem, but it does pose a good question. If we're born sinners, then aren't babies sinners at birth? What's the answer? The answer is yes. Then, then, then why would we consider that babies go to heaven? I know we're answering a lot of it now, but just think about it. Do any of us go to heaven because we've never sinned? Why do we go to heaven? Why do we go to heaven? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, how does that play into a baby who can't necessarily make a decision? That's what we'll talk about next week, okay? And it's, and it's good, and it's a happy ending if you want to kind of, you know, know the, know the ending a little bit. I, I, and I think there's a, biblical, a good biblical case that can be made. Uh, not definitive, but I think, I think a, very good definitive, uh, a very good biblical case uh, can be made. Anyway, that's next week. So, original sin. We're all born sinners. Now, sin did not originate with man. Though. Where did sin originate? Where was sin first discovered? In Satan. And we're not going to reread all of this, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, I know this past year we looked at a, uh, we looked at angelology and so we talked about the devil and the, um, how sin entered. We did talk about that some in there, but in Ezekiel 28, we see where sin came from. Now, if you look, I'll just give you a few of these uh, um, verses here. He starts off, remember, in chapter 28, talking about the real earthly king of Tyre, or of Tyre, and he's prophesying against him. But somewhere around, say, verse 12, 13, he now begins to talk about somebody else. 
And here, here's why we say that. In verse 12, the Lord says to say to the king of Tyre, of Tyre, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Now, is that true of the earthly king of Tyre? No, that's not true. So we know that the prophet now, Ezekiel, is prophesying about someone else. That someone is Satan or Lucifer. You were in Eden. And it says you were covered with all the precious stones. Jump down to 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, meaning you covered the, the glory of God. That's Lucifer before he fell. He said, I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. And look at this next verse. Until, verse 15, righteousness was, excuse me, unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And it goes on. And so we see, um, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. And it goes on to talk about his pride. The sin was pride. Now, how did it originate in Satan or in Lucifer? That's the million-dollar question. How did sin first come about in a being created perfectly? To that point, at least. That's what he says. You were, um, uh, you, you were blameless. That means perfect. In your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So, so where did it come from? You know, you know what I believe? I have no idea. That's what I believe. And if anybody tells you, I mean, maybe they've got a good argument, but there is no verse that tells us exactly how to explain any more to this. But sin came from Satan, from Lucifer. That's where it originated. Now, obviously, if God's sovereign, then he's beyond it and over it in a sense, right? But it originated with Satan and in Satan. God didn't create evil. It, it was found in Lucifer. So I can't explain it any, any better than that. There's just, there's no verse that, 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 um, that I know of that can elaborate any more than that. So it starts there. Then he tempts Adam and Eve. Remember two weeks ago, y'all looked at Genesis 3, right? The serpent, Satan, tempted Eve. Uh, she gave in, gave to Adam who was with her, who wasn't helping protect her. He gets the blame, Romans chapter 5 and following. Uh, and so sin enters into the human race. And so if Adam, I, I'm just chasing a, a rabbit now, but if Adam was created in the image of God, Genesis 1 and 2, is that true? Was Adam created in the image of God, right? So when you get to Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, are there any other humans that are created in the image of God? Are born in the image of God? They're not. The very next birth in Genesis 3 says... Uh, that she bore a son in the image of man, in the image of Adam. We're, in, we're born in sin. All of us are born into sin in the image of Adam. We're marred. No more, no more are we born in the image of God in that way. Now, was humanity created in the image of God? Yes, we talked about that. But our image is marred because we're in the image of Adam. Does that make sense? So I know this is heavy, but we're, we're, we're building with something, I promise. So, so the origin starts with Satan. The result of, the or, uh, of original sin then in humanity is now depravity and inability. Total depravity, total inability. Now we're going to explain that because some people have a lot of problem with these words. That's Calvinism and that's not true. That's a man-made doctrine. Well, is it? Is it really a man-made doctrine or is it true? The result of original sin is total depravity and total inability. Now let's look at what that does not mean because it's mislabeled a lot. 
So what does it not mean? Total depravity does not mean that every person is completely corrupt. You hold the door for somebody, that's not from a corrupted place in you. Does that make sense? Just people who don't even know Jesus do nice things sometimes. We're not totally corrupt. Uh, the sinner has no innate knowledge of God. It doesn't mean that. And let me just add to that first thing that every individual is completely corrupt. That's not true, obviously. It's also not true that we're as, as um, depraved as we could be in every situation. Does that make sense? I mean, some people look at some very disturbing things. Pornographic things. Um, but some people don't look at such bad things. So they could always look at something worse. I'm just trying to think of how to make that argument cleanly. But does that make sense? I mean, I've sinned grotesquely in my life. But I could sin a lot worse. Does that make sense? None of us are as completely as depraved. Or, or we're not totally depraved. We are depraved. But it doesn't mean we're as depraved as we could be. Now, let me get off of that because I, I think I'm twisting that up. So, again, secondly, it doesn't mean the sinner has no innate knowledge of God. We do. Romans 1, we looked at last week, says that everyone is without excuse. We know there's holy God. Amen? The creation testifies to that. And so what's happened is people traded the truth of God for a lie so that they don't have to be responsible. So... Original sin and the total depravity or total inability does not mean that we cannot admire some kind of righteous things, some kind of, um, you know, godly-like character traits in other people. doesn't mean we can't completely fathom it. Now, we may not fathom it biblically completely, right? But we have glimpses of what beauty is and of what goodness is supposed to be. All cultures have a sense of that. And so... It, it doesn't mean the lack of that. It also doesn't mean that every unbelieving man will indulge in every form of sin. I mean, you take someone who is, by earthly standards, very good in all aspects of their life. Take someone who believes in the religion of Mormonism, the Church of, La of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, they do good things. They're kind. They dress nice, right? They ride bikes, so they're, they, they love the environment. I mean, you could even be ridiculous like that if you wanted to. Um, so, I mean, you could point to all of those things, and those are all good, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're good in every area. Uh, their hearts are still chasing an idol created by a man. Does that make sense? And so uh, we, we just need to understand that, that total depravity needs to be qualified. Um, but on the other hand, what total depravity does mean is that the inherent sin in humanity extends to every part of humanity. And more specifically, it extends to every part of myself. So it's not just that my eyes cause me to sin. It's that, it's that my heart is wicked beyond all things before Christ, right? And so uh, my heart wants to sin. My eyes certainly enjoy it as well, uh, which creates endorphins. And so my brain enjoys it even more. And I mean, all those things work together, but, but it, it affects every part of me, every part of my nature. And it, it also means that there is no spiritual good in relation to God in the sinner at all. So just because, like we said, total depravity doesn't mean you can't appreciate some aspect of goodness. That doesn't mean that there's any goodness in us that warrants 
favor from God. Does that make sense? And so Romans 7, 18 says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Romans 7, 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a huge indictment against us. Depravity is real. Ephesians 4, 18, being darkened. We're darkened in understanding outside of Jesus, but apart from Jesus. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And so that gives us more of an understanding of what total depravity is and is not. It's not everything that people believe it to be. It is so misinterpreted uh, in many of our churches today. But we need to understand sin. And so when we study uh, sin more, and we, especially original sin, there's another term we need to understand, and it's theodicy. Now, you may never use that word again, and that's fine. Um, I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned it here in this church. Uh, we've talked about the principle, what it means, and here's what it means. It basically translates as divine justice. It's from two Greek words, theos and um, uh, decay, uh, as in um, like decayo, uh, but decay is the root there. So that means justice. So God, theos, and justice. Um, so divine justice. It is the attempt to defend God's omnipotence and goodness in the face of the problem of evil in the world. So when people say, how can a good God allow bad things in the world? This is part of what, how we answer. We have to understand rightly who God is in relation to the world and in relation to sin and to himself. And so theodicy has to do with divine justice. And so what we're saying is this, that God does not sin and cannot sin himself. God does not and cannot sin himself, nor can he decree or command sin in any others. Now, if God can do all things, let's just play with this. Why can't God demand or command someone to sin? What does it do? Huh? It contradicts his character or violates his character or violates his nature. Right? So, you know, when people ask, um, you know, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? I mean, that, that's, you, there's no winning answer to that. Um, I mean, so, I mean, you can play that off how you want to, but... Thinking about theodicy, how, how could we begin to answer an absurd question like that? I'm looking at Tyler because I figured he already had one ready. How, would, how could we answer that? So what is theodicy? It has to do with justice. And in light of sin, God does not and cannot sin himself, nor can he decree or command sin. For him to do so would violate his character, his nature. So the ludicrous question if, can God make a, if God's omnipotent, he can do all things. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? There you go. God would never do such a foolish thing. And that's, that's how I would say it. He was nicer. God would not put himself in a position to contradict himself. So, so would God do it? God would never put himself in the position to do it. They're going to keep asking, but don't fall for those traps. Those are, those are what's that uh, term? There's a philosoph philosophical term for that. Uh, basically means you can't win. Um, but God's not going to play the game to start with. He's not going to do that. He doesn't violate himself. 
um, his character, his nature, his attributes. And so theodicy is an important concept then when we talk about sin. Now, excuse me, now, um, God does not and cannot sin himself, nor will he decree someone else to do so. In fact, James 1.13 speaks to that. Let no one say then when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So God's not going to do that. That would violate himself and his word. Does that make sense? So can anyone blame God when they sin? No. Can anyone blame other people when they sin? Eh, people may help us sin, but ultimately whose fault is it? It's our fault, right? And so blame shifting for all of us, all ages, isn't that right? For all of us is wrong. Uh, he said, she did, he did, whatever it might be. That's blame shifting that's, that's wrong. Let's own our mistakes. And so, God can't tempt us. He won't do so. That brings us to this next point. God uses sin, though, to accomplish his purposes. So in his sovereign plan, can we explain exactly why he did it? Nope. I mean, I could say he did it to show his glory and given his son, his love and given his son. Um, all of those things, I mean, those things are true. Those things are absolutely true. But how he uses those things for his purposes? Man, I don't know. And when I get to heaven, I'm probably not going to care to answer that. Does that make sense? I mean, we're going to be so enamored by God. But he does, like Genesis 50, 20. As for you, remember Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil against me when they sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good in order to bring about his, this present result to preserve many people alive. Israel continues to exist partly because Joseph was sold into slavery. God used that for good. Can I explain all the details? No. But the word says he did it. And it turned out like the way it was supposed to. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gets glory from that, obviously. But it's still, it's humbling. It's mind-blowing. Romans 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Paul's argument that God raised up Pharaoh for that very purpose. That's a hard pill to swallow. How do we explain it away? We don't explain it away. We accept it as truth. Amen. We don't explain it away. Romans 9.22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's along this same line, this argument. God creating Pharaoh for that very reason. That's very humbling. It's kind of scary on one hand. We don't like to think about God being able to do such things and then carrying through. But God even uses sin to accomplish His purpose. And ultimately, think about this. God used probably the greatest sin as a demonstration of His purposes. What do we mean by that? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and verse 24. This man... Peter preached, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Greatest, greatest tragedy, the death of Christ. God used something that horrible in order to do what? To deliver us from sin. Does that make sense? So God used that ugly thing. In fact, he predetermined such an ugly thing. And, and notice these two verses, what we see here. This drives people crazy. I know we've looked at this before. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
to say sovereignty of God. God planned it, right? Isn't that what it says? That God did it? He determined beforehand to do it? So it was determined. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you see the sovereignty of God in the first part of that verse and you see the, what? Responsibility of humanity in the second part of that verse. Now how exactly do they go together? I don't know. I don't know. But they do. Amen? They do go together. And we need to be okay with that. God is absolutely sovereign and He uses our ability to choose. Some people call it freedom, right? Our um, free will. I just think that's, you need to be careful just saying that with a blanket statement. Define what you mean by that. Because the only will that's truly free today is God's. Amen? The first man, Adam, we might say could had a more freer will. In fact, he did have a free will. I think by the very definition, he was not bound to sin in that, in that moment. But sin entered into the world and now we're all bound to sin. So, how was sin imputed to all men from Adam? How did that happen? Imputation of sin means that sin is universal. It's universal. It extends to all humanity. And this is extremely important. And you might think, okay, that makes sense. I mean, we're all in Adam. But so many churches today don't teach this. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. I said that was Psalm 139. I apologize. That's been... Um, that's, it does mention something very similar to that. Never mind. Um, but Ephesians 2, 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, universal as the rest. Nature, by nature, children of wrath. So why do we have this sin nature? How is Adam's sin then imputed to us? And this is, we just have a few minutes left. Let me give you just a quick scenario of all the major schools of thought. And there's just four key ones that we'll look at. Two are real close. The first one came around about 370 AD. It was by the man Pelagius. Pelagius. And so it's known as Pelagianism. It's a big word, but it's just named after him. Here's what it means, basically. That no created soul had any direct relation to Adam's sin. And every soul is thus born innocent and unstained. So Pelagianism teaches that every soul is born what? Huh? I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Unstained. Good. Everyone's born good. Right? I mean, that, that's, I was just looking for a more simple way to say it. Everyone is born good according to Pelagianism. It's born good. So, is that true? Does that line up with what the Bible teaches? That all are born in sin. Right? We're steeped in sin at birth. Uh, all of those things. There's none righteous, not one. So, Pelagianism is not true. So, there is a partial acceptance of this called semi-Pelagianism. And now there's much more to these. I'm just giving you the, 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 uh, the very minimal here. This is basically that man <clears throat> is not considered guilty because of Adam's sin. And people have the ability to choose to live righteously or to sin. And so this is like your Wesleyans, your Method, Methodist, Roman Catholicism teaches this. There are others as well. These are the three major branches, though, that would teach this idea. So... You're not considered guilty because of Adam's sin and you have the ability to choose to live righteously or to sin. Can you think of any big school of thought that, that carries that idea? 
Arminianism, Calvinism or Arminianism. If you held those two poles on like where we believe in, if you're saved, are you always saved or not? The Bible says you're always saved because God will not lose one, not one. And no one will snatch you out of his hand, Jesus said, that sort of thing. So, um, but this side of the spectrum, though, doesn't believe that. Arminianism says that you can lose your salvation. That's why Catholics have to confess to the priest and do, why am I holding my hands out? They have to do those things. Um, uh, you have to do the rosary, you do penance, all these different things because they could lose their salvation. There are venial sins, right? There's different categories of sin. If you die in a car wreck before you, before you confess those sins, then you'll go to purgatory, which again is not true. It's a made-up place uh, to allow the Roman church to get more money by having family members pay to get them out of their... Um, holding tank basically and I'm not trying to be crass or trivial I know many of us here have Catholic backgrounds I'm, I'm just trying to summarize and that's the summary I mean that's the reality so um, as MacArthur said I think he said it first either him or Lawson if you could lose your salvation guess what you would you would lose your salvation and that's true of all of us um, and so we would all be walking around trying to make sure we never never sinned against anyone but but that's just not possible. And that's how we would be walking around, making that noise every single day. Because it would just be uh, futile to try to do so. But that's semi-Pelagianism. Augustinianism. Now, this is after uh, Augustine or Augustine. Augustinianism. I was fixing to say, don't ask me how to spell it tonight. Uh, I'm really tired. My new treatment. I've been pain-free since yesterday about 1 o'clock. And I'm just like so relaxed and tired right now. It's been awesome. Um, but Augustinianism, basically... It says this, that in Romans 5.12, all sinned by means of a participation in Adam's sin. Just as Levi, though not yet born, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Now he's quoting here um, Hebrews 7. Uh, so now, all humanity, and meaning in that same way, all humanity was present in Adam when he sinned. Now let me read it again. In Romans 5.12, all sin by means of participation in Adam's sin, just as Levi, though not yet born, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So all humanity was present in Adam when he sinned. What do you think about that? True or false? Anyone? It's pretty close. And if, I mean, if we just took it as it right there and didn't read anything else from Augustine, we might say, that's it. That's the answer. But look at this last view. Look at the federal view or federal, federalism or representative. It's a very close to Augustinianism, but it's not the same thing. This view says Adam was the representative or the federal representative or the federal head, some people say. He was the representative for the entire human race. And his decision to sin was then imputed to the entire human race as a whole. Now think about that for a second. That key word there, what is it? Imputed, right? Remember what that means? Basically, it's placed into the account. Uh, now, what do you think about that one? Do you think that one's more right or is it about the same? What do you think? Both of these views are within orthodoxy. The one with more historical weight has been the federal view. More people hold to the federal view even still today. Though there are some godly people who hold to the Augustinian view. But look at it again. Was, did we sin in Adam or was, our, was Adam's sin placed into our account? Let's read Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. This will be fun. <clears throat> and I'm not being sarcastic. This really will be fun. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the whole world and death through sin, 
<clears throat> and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. The free gift is salvation, or I guess specifically the grace of salvation. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification to the life of all men. Now, you still with me? That la those last two verses should begin to clear, clear the water a little bit. Some of you are looking around. I know. It, hopefully, when, I'll still remember this when we get to heaven. I want to ask Paul if he wrote this way because that's how he wrote or if he was trying to prove a point to somebody. Because some of these things are a little hard for me to grasp. I think he wrote according to the will of the Holy Spirit, obviously. That was supposed to be a joke, and none of you even, like, cracked a smile. But um, some of his writings are hard to understand, and we get testimony to that from Peter as well. But notice this, verse 19. <clears throat> For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Does that help a little more now? So does that help you understand what it means to be imputed? So were we in Adam, as the Augustinian view said, when he sinned? Or is he the representative and his sin is then placed into our account? Which one of those sounds more biblical? Neither one of them are her heretical. Tyler, Tyler's over there taking the easy road. Let's, can we merge them together? That's probably not a bad view, though. That's probably not a bad, bad view, if we're very careful to define what we mean. But... Notice what, what he says here. Through the act of one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So one sin, condemnation came to everybody. Does that make sense? That speaks more to the federal idea when we, when we reverse that with Jesus. Therefore, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to the life of all men. There's no verse that says, because we're in Christ, that we did the justifying. Does that make sense? The justification comes from God. All right, maybe, maybe I'm making too much out of this. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and, and chapter 6, verse 1, we quote a lot. What shall we then say? Shall we continue to sin so that grace can increase? And his answer, an emphatic, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? And so all of those ideals tie together to talk really about this idea of, of imputation and original sin. How does it come to us? Well, hold these two things together. Wherever you fall down between that mixture of those last two views, Augustinian or federal, I think the truth is closer to federal, if not federal itself, depending on how we define some things. But, but the other is within orthodoxy as well. So hold to these two truths, however, in balance. 
I sin because I'm a sinner. That's important to know. And I am a sinner because I sin. That's equally as important to know. Both of those things are true. I think we know which one came first just by looking at original sin and imputation. But the point is that that should not really ever need to be an argument between brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? We sin and we're sinners. Um, That's why I like this ideal of um, uh, uh, the doctrine of simultaneity. Um, Where simultaneously saint and sinner, that idea... Now, obviously, we're being sanctified, so the sinner should be dying away. But to go with Paul's arguments uh, about, you know, wretched man that I am, why I do the things I don't want to do and I can't do the things I know I should, I mean, I think that speaks to it. The doctrine of of simultaneity, that's it, simultaneity. Um, Simultaneously righteous and unrighteous. Um, But our righteousness should be growing in Christ. So I'm a sinner because I sin, and I sin because I'm a sinner. Now, here's the last thing. To remember, if there is no imputation of Adam's sin to us, then there is no biblical reason for imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And that's a mouthful. But here's the main point. If original sin is not true, then we don't need Christ. There's no reason to, to say that, that the world needs Jesus. Amen? Does that make sense? There's no basis for us to argue someone's goodness or their badness. It would be a, a, a relative scale, Right? I mean, think about somebody like Gandhi who, who did all these great things. I mean, that's, he, was, he did great works only, right? No, he didn't. He did some very abhorrent, sinful things. Um, uh, there's documentation of pedophilia with him. Uh, but if his good works outweighed his bad, I mean, we could start getting into all that. It's ridiculous. The reality is we're sinners. Amen? And, a, and, and, and if it wasn't for Christ giving us of himself and his holiness, we would always be sinners. And so imputation is so important to remember. Adam's original sin placed in our account. Christ's righteousness when we repent gets placed into our account. And we probably could have started right there and then finished right there and, and we would have been out of here a long time ago. But I think those topics are important for us to at least hear Maybe write down a little bit, spend a little bit of time with, in case the ideals get brought up. And if you have family who are Methodist or uh, even Episcopalian in that Wesleyan tradition, um, so you could even say like a Nazarene, uh, anyone on that, on that end of the spectrum, the ideal of imputation and original sin and how we become holy are important topics to at least have a grasp on. Is that fair? And so um, that's why we spent this time tonight. Now, again, next week, babies, uh, is there any hope for them to go to heaven? Uh, How does grace play into that in original sin? Uh, So we'll look at that. And then we'll probably, um, uh, well, let me ask you, do you want to talk about specific sins? Or, that's maybe not a good way to say that. Or do we want to look at... um, Maybe let's deal with temptation to sin and how to, how to overcome sin. Let's do that. I think that'd be more helpful. Is that, is that fair? Because in the following week is Thanksgiving and we don't have a Wednesday night service that night. So next week we'll deal with, uh, remind me, we'll deal with temptation uh, and overcoming sin. And so I think that'll be helpful for us. We'll also talk about the baby issue as well. Um, so anything else? Anything else? All right. Uh, Thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate you.